Section 12 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4, Ralph Cudworth, Christian Philosophy in Conflict with Materialism, Part 3. B. But if Cudworth strongly maintained the ultimate harmony of knowledge and faith, he still more strongly maintained the unity of faith and life, of religious principle and morality. This is his favorite thought as a preacher. The passages already quoted show this. But he repeats the truth with frequent felicities of expression. The object of religion, he insists, is not to propagate opinions, however right or orthodox, still less to contend for this or that opinion, but only to persuade men to the life of Christ. This is, quote, the pith and kernel of all religion, without which all its several forms are but so many several dreams. Christ was vitae magister, not scoli, and he is the best Christian whose heart beats with the truest pulse towards heaven, not he whose head spinneth out the finest cobwebs. He that endeavors really to mortify his lusts, and to comply with that truth in his life which his confidence is convinced of, is nearer a Christian, though he never heard of Christ, than he that believes all the vulgar articles of the Christian faith, and plainly denieth Christ in his life. The way to heaven is plain and easy if we have but honest hearts. We need not many criticisms or school distinctions. Christ came not to ensnare us and entangle us with captious niceties, or to puzzle our heads with deep speculations, and lead us through hard and craggy notions into the kingdom of heaven. No man shall ever be kept out of heaven for not comprehending mysteries, if he had but an honest and good heart that was ready to comply with Christ's commandments. It was the distemper of the times to invert all this, quote, to scare and fright men only with opinions, and make them solicitous about the entertaining of this and that speculation, whilst, in the meantime, there is no such care taken about keeping of Christ's commandments. We say, lo, here is Christ, and lo, there is Christ, in these and these opinions, whereas, in truth, Christ is neither here nor there, nor anywhere, but where the Spirit of Christ, where the life of Christ, is. Close quote for men to spend all their zeal upon a violent obtruding of their own opinions and apprehensions upon others, which cannot give entertainment to them, is repugnant both to the doctrine and example of Christ, and an endless source of, quote, discord and contention in Christian commonwealths, whilst, in the meantime, these hungry and starved opinions devour all the life and substance of religion, as the lean kine in Pharaoh's dream did eat up the fat, Close quote. A violent opposition to other men's superstitions, without any inward principle of spirit and life in their own souls, was common with the noisy religionists of the age. Quote, Many that pull down idols in churches set them up in our hearts, and whilst they quarrel with painted glass, make no scruple at all of entertaining many foul lusts and committing continual idolatry with them. Close quote. It required some courage to address the British House of Commons in this style in 1647, and some of those addressed can hardly fail to have been pricked in their conscience at the faithful words. There were many Puritan preachers ready to handle school distinctions and the captious niceties of orthodoxy, but there were few who ventured to speak such words of truth and soberness, and to set forth so distinctly the essence and meaning of all religion. At the close of a religious revolution, which had excited the most hostile passions, and in which the most sacred subjects had passed into shibboleths of party warfare, it was a great thing to hold up before those who had been champions alike in the theological and civil strife, 
a picture of religion which transcended all their wrangling and had nothing to do with their most cherished watchwords. The very air had become infected with religious contentiousness. Many a grim senator and warrior before the preacher had spent their lives and were willing to have spent their blood for this or that opinion, and their hearts must have moved within them to hear from one who was animated by as strong a love of spiritual liberty as any of them, that religion in its vital essence had no connection with their favorite speculations and fancies, that an enthusiasm which boasted of its peculiar privilege was no more religion than a sacerdotalism which had prated of ceremonial blessing, and that the only true religion was loving God and keeping his commandments, the being good and doing good. In the same spirit, Cudworth deals with the special question of the relation of justification and sanctification, so much spoken of in the religious language of the day. His views here, in fact, are nothing else than a theological application of his general view of the nature of religion. He does not object to discriminate betwixt justification and sanctification, or even to speak of an imputative righteousness. It is not his intention, quote, to quarrel about words and phrases as if Christ's meritorious satisfaction might not be said to be imputed to those that repent and believe the gospel for remission of sins, much less to deny what the Holy Scripture plainly asserts, true and living faith that worketh by love, which is the very essence of the new creature or regenerate nature, to be imputed or accounted for righteousness. But he strongly repudiates the idea of ever conceiving salvation apart from its essential moral meaning, and cautions against the quote, antinomian error too often insinuated under the notion of imputed righteousness, as if there were no necessity of inherent righteousness and a real victory over sin in order to salvation. Close quote. In the second sermon, there are many references to the religious parties of the time, which Cudworth sketches upon the whole with some degree of fairness and insight, but without adequate discrimination. True criticism, even of phenomena before their eyes, is not to be expected in the writers of the 17th century. Their descriptions are inextricably mingled up with their own prejudices and fancies. Cudworth is free from prejudice, but his portraiture is clumsily molded by his own preconceptions and the habits of a meditative rather than a critical intellect. Yet it is easy to trace under his somewhat vague epithets certain obvious divergencies of religious opinion and still more easy to recognize the variety and violence of the religious agitations which moved the century. Footnote. Ceremonial righteousness, opinionative zeal, high-flown enthusiasm, seraphicism, epicurizing philosophy, antinomian liberty, etc. End of footnote. It was well for the country, as well as for religion, that there were minds which stood firm amidst the commotion, and which could conceive and embody such a picture of genuine Christianity as Cudworth's sermons both present. It is comparatively rare in every age to find earnestness combined with sense, and a profound depth of religious feeling with a comprehensive realization of the facts of life. Intensity is the cheap product of excitement, and repeated experience proves that there is no force of mere genius which may not be caught by the rising gale of religious enthusiasm, and wafted to the wildest heights of absurdity. Ceremonial righteousness, or sacerdotalism in all its forms, opinionative zeal, or evangelical dogmatism in its many varieties, an epicurizing philosophy and an antinomian liberty seemed destined to perpetual resurrection with the wavering advance of religious history. 
but it remains nevertheless true that the chief hope for human progress and the perfection of the individual lies in a rational christian thoughtfulness which is at once true to the divine and the human and which while it bows before the mysteries of the unseen acknowledges the claims of those natural verities which religion should elevate and purify but which it can never supersede two we now turn to consider cudworth in his chief aspect of a religious thinker as presented in his great work the true intellectual system of the universe large as this work now is extending in the original folio edition to about nine hundred pages it was designed to be larger it expanded unconsciously in the hands of its author till it outgrew all proportion some of the digressions run entirely away from the main argument and make the book rather a series of treatises than a definite and coordinated treatise if it never loses altogether sight of the subject which reappears luminously at the close as at the beginning it has yet in the meantime taken up and explored correlative topics at such length that the reader loses all thread of continuous advance or at least fails to hold in his mind the windings and divergencies of its semi-speculative and semi-historical discussions the massive build of thought is unrelieved by any graces of style or felicities of literary outline yet there is often a marvelous expressiveness in special phrases and passages and the general effect is highly definite and significant taken as a whole it is a marvelous magazine of thought and learning and remains one of the most undoubted monuments of the philosophical and theological genius of the seventeenth century at first cudworth seems to have intended merely a treatise on liberty and necessity but afterwards as he himself explains he saw that the question betwixt him and the hobbyan philosophy was really one as to the rational interpretation or true intellectual system of the universe what is the true position of man therein and what is first and what is last in the order of being he defines in the outset the various forms of fatalism which appear to him inconsistent with the true order of the universe there is first material necessity or what he calls the democritic fate which leaves no room for the idea of god or spiritual existence at all but explains all phenomena even those of thought by mechanical laws and the formation of being by the fortuitous concourse or aggregation of atoms second theological or religious fatalism taught by many scholastic philosophers and modern theologians which regards all actions as equally necessitated and refers the ideas of good and evil to the arbitrary will of god this he calls the divine fate immoral third a fatalism like the ancient stoicism which without denying the reality of moral ideas or a supreme moral being identifies this being with the invariable order of nature and leaves no room for free will in men or in his own words takes away from men all such liberty as might make them capable of praise and dispraise rewards and punishments this he calls the divine fate moral all these forms of fate or necessity are essentially inconsistent with a true theory of religion the first destroys the divine idea altogether the second and third mutilate the idea so as to leave it without force or value against these views he sets forth three great principles which on the other hand appear to him to sum up religious and moral truth viz first the reality of a supreme divine intelligence and a spiritual world against the atomistic materialism of democritus and epicurus second the eternal reality of moral ideas against the nominalists of the middle ages and modern divines imbued with their principles and third 
the reality of moral freedom and responsibility in man against all pantheistic naturalism and stoicism. The work which we have, under the name of the true intellectual system of the universe, deals formally only with the first of these principles and its correlative antagonism, although the author often falls into trains of argument more appropriate to the second or third stage of his designed plan. The treatise on immutable morality may be taken as the accomplishment of the second part. Cudworth thus describes his complete conception or philosophy of religion in his own language. Quote, These three things are the fundamentals or essentials of true religion, namely, that all things do not float without a head and governor, but there is an omnipotent understanding being presiding over all, that God hath an essential goodness and justice, and that the differences of good and evil moral, honest and dishonest, are not by mere will and law only, but by nature and consequently that the deity cannot act, influence, and necessitate men to such things as are in their own nature evil. And lastly, that necessity is not intrinsical to the nature of everything, but that men have such a liberty or power over their own actions as may render them accountable for the same, and blameworthy when they do amiss. And consequently, that there is a justice distributive of rewards and punishments running through the world. Close quote. These three things, quote, taken all together, make up the wholeness and entireness of that which is here called the true intellectual system of the universe, in such a sense as atheism may be called a false system thereof, the word intellectual being added to distinguish it from the other vulgarly so-called systems of the world, that is, the visible and corporeal world, the Ptolemaic, Tychonic, and Copernican, the two former of which are now commonly accounted false, the latter true. Close quote. It is important to notice the moral interest which lies at the root of all Cudworth's speculation, although, in point of fact, the special ethical question with which he started was not embraced in his extended scheme of argument. Like all his school, he not only maintained zealously the essential connection of religion and morality in life, but he is unable to understand any basis for an adequate theory or philosophy of religion which does not rest on the conception of man as a free moral subject capable of choosing for himself good or evil. As religion cannot exist without morality, so morality cannot exist without liberty, and thus the divine idea comes in the end to sustain itself on the fact of free will as an essential attribute or characteristic of humanity. This coordination of thought will be found to underlie all his system of philosophy. Throughout, he is not only, in modern language, an intuitional moralist, but one who never loses sight of the great idea of free will as the core and life of both religion and morality. The treatise of free will shows this more fully, but not more plainly, than it was previously indicated in his writings. The breakdown of his complete plan makes Cudworth doubt whether he should not have spared the general title. His hope had been to embrace within the compass of a single volume three several books, quote, each book having its own particular title as 1. Against Atheism, 2. For Natural Justice and Morality Founded in the Deity, 3. For Liberty from Necessity and a Distributive Justice of Rewards and Punishments in the World. Close quote. He makes an apology for his shortcoming but at the same time maintains the completeness and unity of his work so far as it had been accomplished. It contained, he says, all that belonged to its own particular title and subject, and was in that respect no piece but a whole. Cudworth's readers are not likely to find fault with him for having abbreviated the original extent of his design, 
especially as he has in several places, in the beginning of his fourth chapter, for example, and elsewhere, really comprised many of the considerations that would have entered into the special treatment of the subjects of the second and third books proposed by him. His real fault everywhere is not abbreviation, but diffusion, and, as we have already observed, he is eminently one of those writers who carry with them into all special details of argument the full significance and flavor of the general principles which lie at the basis of their thought. It is difficult to do justice to a work like Cudworth's, and yet keep our remarks within any such compass and unity as would interest the modern reader, or deserve to interest him. And this difficulty arises not merely from the vast and unorganized materials of the book, but perhaps in a still greater degree from the constant repetition of its main ideas. The author constantly returns on the same strain, and even the same modes of expression, in meeting the atheistic objections with which he deals. He lays over and over again his theistic platform in the face of the subversive planes of thought which appear before him, but he often adds little as he advances to the substance of his argument. He does not dig its foundations deeper nor raise its structure higher. The pervading polemical character of the work adds to its confusion and desultoriness. It is, as he himself says, an argument against atheism rather than in favor of theism. The first three chapters are devoted to the several atheistic systems as conceived and discriminated by him. In the fourth chapter he enters for the first time upon the positive aspect of his subject, and endeavors to deal directly with the idea of God. But he has no sooner begun than he is seduced into the two longest of all his digressions as to the true meaning of the pagan mythology and the relation of the Platonic and Christian trinities. Both these excursions, which are treatises in themselves, spring up in connection with the primary divine attribute of unity. In the fifth and last chapter, which is subdivided into five sections, he resumes the thread of his exposition of the idea of God with something in the shape of proof of the validity or objective character of the idea, or, in other words, of argumentative evidence for the being of a God. But here, too, his argument is chiefly negative, or in the form of replies to objections. It takes everywhere the aspect of polemical rather than of direct exposition. Positive principles only come out against a vast background of argumentative and negative detail. They do not stand clear and together by themselves. To take up the course of discussion, therefore, from point to point in this vast and tangled array, would be to plunge into a review of systems and a mass of philology and antiquity, as the author himself says, which would ill reward our pains. For his mode of dealing with ancient opinion was simply accumulative. He massed quotations from every source, but he neither illumined them with discerning insight, nor sifted and fitted them together with reference to their relative meaning or any sense of historical perspective. It would be easier for modern criticism to begin the task de novo and reconstruct the ancient speculative systems and the fabric of pagan mythology from first sources than to attempt to unravel the maze which they exhibit in his pages. We abandon, therefore, all attempt to do so, as labor both useless in itself and without any bearing on our purpose, which is to bring out the significance of Cudworth's own thought rather than his mode of handling the thought of others. Our purpose will be best attained by keeping in the first instance free of all his digressions and endeavoring to bring out clearly the import of his theistic attitude against the atheistic systems which he discusses. We shall then pass briefly under review his subordinate speculations touching a plastic nature, the Trinity, and the Resurrection, 
which have been considered peculiarly characteristic and exposed him to criticism both in his own time and since finally after a brief treatment of his position as a moralist we shall endeavor to estimate his relation to contemporary thinkers particularly descartes and hobbes and point out how far any of his speculations may still have a living interest in reference to later cosmical controversies under these successive heads we shall gather up in the best manner all that seems most significant in cudworth's labors a the materialism which cudworth chiefly attacks by name is that of democritus b c four sixty to three sixty one and epicurus what he calls the atheism of atomicism but in reality he has constantly in view the speculations of his contemporary hobbes which he identifies in many ways with the ancient democritic philosophy in the same connection he frequently glances at descartes who sought in his physical system to solve phenomena by the mere laws of their connection or interdependence without the interposition of any special or subordinate agency the idea now so familiar and it may be said accepted by all thinkers that there is nothing intermediate betwixt the primal mover and all the phenomena of movement which constitute the universe appeared a startling novelty in the seventeenth century and presented peculiar difficulties to the mind both of cudworth and of moore the decisiveness with which the idea was seized by descartes and the large sphere which he thus seemed to clear for the operation of purely physical laws seemed to them as it were to empty the world of deity and place his action out of view and this serves to explain the manner in which cudworth occasionally speaks of descartes as well as hobbes as inimical to theism footnote referring to the cartesians he says that they quote, have an undiscerned tang of the mechanic atheism hanging about them close quote. End of footnote. in the opening of his work he distinguishes carefully betwixt the democritic or atomic atheism and the general theory of the atomic philosophy this theory he defines as the recognition of certain primitive simple elements of magnitude figure sight motion out of which all corporeal phenomena have been formed instead of seeing anything to condemn in it he traces it more or less in all the philosophical systems of antiquity and even in the primitive hebrew literature the monads of pythagoras the homogeneous elements of anaxagoras and the root elements of empedocles are all to him but different phases of the same fundamental conception while a passage in strabo which speaks of a certain sidonian or phoenician of the name of moscus as the inventor of the atomic theory immediately suggests to him the identity of the said moscus and moses there was nothing therefore in this venerable and widely accepted dogma originally inconsistent with theism it professed to explain the physical origin of the universe and nothing else it presupposed the divine will as the primal mover of all but lucippus and democritus and after them protagoras and epicurus cut off the spiritual side of the philosophy and left only the material they took away the highest part of it and left only as he says the meanest and lowest in this respect hobbes followed them he repeatedly recurs to this view and reprehends his materialistic opponents with bad faith and stupidity as well as impiety in thus mutilating the old atomic doctrine and putting forth their atheistic speculations under its name the ancient physiologers he says quote, atomized but they did not atheize atheistical atomology was a thing first set on foot by lucippus and democritus joining these two things together the atomical physiology 
which supposes that there is nothing in body but magnitude, figure, sight, and motion, and that prejudice or prepossession of their own minds, that there was no other substance in the world besides body, between them they begat a certain mongrel and spurious philosophy, atheistically atomical or atomically atheistical. He strongly repudiates the assertion, confidently made in his time, and virtually repeated in our own, that the ancient philosophers never dreamed of any such thing as incorporeal substance, and that this conception is therefore the newfangled invention of bigotal religionists. Footnote. His allusion is evidently to Hobbes's statement, chapter 12, part 1 of the Leviathan, that the idea of spirit, in the sense of incorporeal substance, quote, could never enter into the mind of any man by nature. Close quote. End of footnote. On the contrary, he maintains that though in all ages there have been those who have disbelieved the existence of anything beyond what was sensible, the fact of mind or spirit as a distinct substance has been held by all the most distinguished names in philosophy, from Thales downwards. He quotes Plato and Aristotle at length on the subject, and vindicates to himself satisfactorily the conclusions that all the best of the ancient thinkers, including the original atomists, were both theists and incorporealists. In addition to the mechanical hypothesis, which is his main point of attack, Cudworth indicates three other forms of atheism, to which he gives the respective names of, one, hylopathian, two, cosmoplastic, and three, hylozoic. All are essentially materialistic, no less than the democritic theory, inasmuch as they do not recognize any existence beyond matter, but they are distinguished from it, and from each other, by the very different conceptions under which they regard matter as operating in the formation of nature. Whereas the mechanical theory views the world as originating inexplicably in the mere conjunction of matter and motion, or atoms somehow in movement, these speculations severally conceive matter itself as the spring of everything. In the first, the hule, or original matter, is supposed to be primarily dead and stupid, but to possess qualities and forms capable of generating or pushing forward into all the phenomena of nature, and even those which contain life and intelligence. This form of atheism is associated with the name of Anaximander, B.C. 710-547. to Again, quote, the cosmoplastic or stoical atheism supposes one plastic but senseless nature to preside over the whole corporeal universe. And lastly, the hylozoic or stratonical attributes to all matter as such a certain living and energetic nature, but devoid of all animality, sense, and consciousness. He calls this latter system stratonical as being derived from Straton of Lampsacus, a philosopher of the third century before Christ. Footnote tutor of Ptolemy Philadelphus, and supposed by some a precursor of Spinoza. End of footnote. It is needless to point out the identity of the fundamental conception in all these systems. Matter is conceived in all as possessed of a certain independent activity, capable of generating or developing the world. Evolution is the underlying idea of all, whereas mechanism or construction is the special idea of the democratic system and according to the confession of Cudworth himself, all atheistic speculation may be reduced to these two main types, the one of which seeks to explain everything by accidental combinations of matter and motion, and the other by the conception of matter as in itself living, active, and capable of endless development into higher forms of being. The one may be said to bring us ultimately in face of an atom or mere point of matter, the other before some vague conception of material life or force. 
even this distinction disappears in the last analysis and leaves us only a general conception of a law of origin or primal activity out of which all being comes the essential question concerns the character of this law in the last resort is it material or spiritual is the primal force any form of matter or is it mind is mind first or second or in cudworth's language senior or junior and is the world to be conceived as matter plus mind or mind plus matter the whole question comes at length to this and no one has ever more clearly apprehended or more distinctly put the issue than the author of the true intellectual system of the universe he saw in full light what so many theistic thinkers have taken so long to see that the subordinate conception of construction or evolution of an act or process of origin is of no vital moment theism is no more essentially involved in the one conception than the other and just as there have been theistic atomists there have been theistic hylozoists the hylozoist who quote, professes to hold a deity and a rational soul immortal is not to be taken for a mere disguised atheist or counterfeit histrionical theist hylozoism or atomism by themselves are merely modes of conceiving the order of things or the formation of the world they are only atheistic when combined with corporealism in other words when they exclude mind from its place in nature as the prime source and ruler of all and acknowledge no other substance besides body or matter the essence of atheism in short is the displacement of mind from its position at the head of nature the subordination of mind to matter as its outcome and highest flower of development rather than its maker and governor all atheism is materialism or as cudworth calls it corporealism it denies the independent existence and supreme character of mind and leaves us face to face not with intelligence but with a mere vague force which is capable of growing into intelligence as into any other force of cosmic activity cudworth insists over and over again upon this final view of the question and directs all the force of his argument under its pressure to an attempt to establish the distinction and supremacy of mind in the universe the genuine theist he says is he who makes the first original of all things universally to be a consciously understanding nature or perfect mind now he remarks elsewhere there are two grand opinions opposite to one another the one of which contends that the first principle of all things is senseless matter the other that quote, the only unmade thing and principal cause and original of all other things was not senseless matter but a perfect conscious understanding nature or mind and these are they who are strictly and properly called theists who affirm that a perfectly conscious understanding being a mind existing of itself from all eternity was the cause of all other things and they on the contrary who derive all things from senseless matter as the first original are those that are properly called atheists wherefore the true and genuine idea of god in general is this a perfect conscious understanding being or mind existing of itself from eternity and the cause of all other things again he says quote, all atheists are mere corporealists for as there was never any yet known who asserting corporeal substance did deny a deity so neither can there be any reason why he that admits the former should exclude the latter thus broadly does cudworth lay down the distinction between a theistic and atheistic theory of the universe this is what he means by the true intellectual system of the universe 
the recognition of mind or spiritual intelligence at the head of all things as their original source and supreme governor that on the other hand is a false or atheistic system which under whatever form recognizes material nature as originating and containing its own development the first word of the one system is mind the second matter the only word of the other is matter of which mind is regarded as merely one of the manifestations or evolutions this is the ultimate issue to which thought comes on the subject but in order more fully and punctually to declare the true idea of god cudworth adverts to quote, a certain opinion of some philosophers who went as it were in a middle betwixt both the former and neither made matter alone nor god the sole principle of all things but joined them both together and held two first principles or self-existent unmade beings independent upon one another god and the matter this middle opinion he ascribes to the stoics on the authority of cicero plutarch and others he does not think however that it is fairly attributed to aristotle or to the neoplatonists notwithstanding that these philosophers asserted the eternity of the world the independent existence of matter and its eternity are not to be confounded those who maintain two self-existent principles god and matter he pronounces imperfect theists for there may be he says quote, a latitude allowed in theism and though in a strict and proper sense they be only theists who acknowledge one god perfectly omnipotent the sole original of all things and as well the cause of matter as of anything else yet it seems reasonable that such consideration should be had of the infirmity of human understandings as to extend the word further that it may comprehend within it those also who assert one intellectual principle self-existent from eternity the framer and governor of the whole world though not the creator of the matter and that none should be condemned for absolute atheists merely because they hold eternal uncreated matter unless they also deny an eternal unmade mind ruling over the matter and so make senseless matter the sole original of all things Close quote. having thus laid down the essential basis of the idea of god he shows how it includes not only infinite power and knowledge or in other words omnipotence and omniscience but above all infinite good or love knowledge and power alone he says quote, will not make a god for god is generally conceived by all to be a most venerable and most desirable being whereas an omniscient and omnipotent arbitrary deity that hath nothing either of benignity or morality in its nature to measure and regulate its will as it could not be truly august and venerable so neither could it be desirable it being that which could only be feared and dreaded Close quote. love therefore the very idea or essence of the good must be added to power and knowledge in order to give us the true conception of the divine a conclusion for which cudworth appeals in his usual manner to the authority of plato and the hebrew cabalists who quote, make a sephira in the deity superior both to bina and chokhmah understanding and wisdom which they call chether or the crown Close quote. it is at this point of his exposition that the question of the divine unity comes before him and having started this question he runs off into a prolonged disquisition as to the true and genuine sense of the pagan polytheism it had been argued quote, that this opinion of monarchy or of one supreme god the maker and governor of all hath no foundation in nature nor in the genuine ideas and prolepses of men's minds 
but is a mere artificial thing owing its original wholly to private fancies and conceits or to positive laws and institutions amongst jews christians and mahometans this if well founded was a formidable objection to the truth of the divine unity for one of the fundamental principles of the philosophy of the cambridge school was that all true divine ideas as all other ideas were so far innate coincident with the natural anticipations even when transcending the actual discovery of the human mind if polytheism therefore rather than monotheism was the natural expression of the mind in religion and the monotheistic stage was only reached by artificial means the influence of a special culture or special authority this constituted an obvious difficulty were it found true that pagan nations generally worshipped a multitude of self-existent and independent deities acknowledging no sovereign newman this he says would much have stumbled the naturality of the divine idea it was with the view of a soiling of this difficulty so formidable at first sight that he entered into the whole subject of pagan theology and sought to trace the hidden monotheism underlying its polytheistic modes of expression we shall not follow our author in this digression the subject of ancient beliefs and of the growth of religious ideas has passed into a new phase with the advance of historical criticism and whatever may now be thought of our author's conclusion quote, that the pagan theologies all along acknowledged one sovereign and independent deity from which all their other gods were generated close quote, there are no modern students who would consider it of any serious importance in its bearing on the general question of theism for were it granted that polytheism was the natural religion of man everywhere and that the course of religious thought as modern inquiry tends to show has been upwards from the rudest nature worship to a monotheism more or less pure instead of the pagan religions being according to the old view distortions and popular corruptions of an original revelation the fact nevertheless remains that monotheism represents the higher growth of reason and civilization in all countries and this fact surely that man everywhere with the advance of thought and the general improvement of his nature outgrows the polytheistic instincts in which worship begins must be held to be a clear proof that the monotheistic idea is natural as natural certainly as any other growth or discovery of the human reason in regard to the divine passing therefore from this topic and also in the meantime from our author's discussion of the christian and platonic trinities we shall follow up as briefly as we can his defense of theism in his concluding chapter here as everywhere he so mixes up his argument with endless replies to objections that it is extremely difficult to disentangle its main thread he is very anxious as he says not to dissemble any of the atheists strength and so he parades all their most colorable pretenses against the idea of god with a view of exposing their folly and invalidity there are first of all objections to the idea itself already so far explained and vindicated these objections are set forth and elaborately refuted in the first section of the chapter then there is a series of special objections as to the impossibility of creation out of nothing the nature of spiritual or incorporeal existence the phenomena of motion and cogitation and finally the difficulties of providence all of which are treated in separate sections from this mass of laborious argumentation we shall endeavor to extract the most distinctive principles end of chapter four part three